Painting little samurai figurines is imagery that is so central to the friendly fire mythos that I frankly think it's astonishing that we haven't gotten to today's film until now. Maybe we hadn't come up with enough of a justification for it being on one of our lists, or maybe it wasn't the right time of year to fire this film up. Whatever the reason was, I can't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. But while we reference things in this film on the show fairly constantly, we haven't gotten to it until now. The director, John Frankenheimer, is a past and future entrant in the Friendly Fire pantheon. His final film, Path to War, is already in the feed, and he's got something like half a dozen more films on our agenda. He had an incredibly prolific career spanning almost five decades, but if he just made today's film, Dayenu. What we've got for you today is a spy versus spy, Russian mob versus ultra-violent splinter faction of the Irish Republican Army, Paris versus Provence, Mercedes versus Citroën, white-knuckle thriller centered around an oversized briefcase handcuffed to a bad guy. This is the kind of film for which pork is chopped. The way this film opens is that Robert De Niro hides a pistol in the alley behind a cafe in Montmartre walks in, makes contact with the Irish bombshell hiring him for a mission, and pretends he only speaks French. And we are off to the fucking races. So many films would set themselves up with an opening scene like this and fall flat on their face trying to build out the world, trying to justify a MacGuffin that would be equally valuable to Irish terrorists and Russian gangsters, but financially out of reach maybe for both groups. We're trying to elucidate a rationale for the French arms dealers attempting to kill our heroes by hiding a sniper under Pont Alexandre III, or doing an illegal arms deal under one of the busiest bridges in central Paris in the first place. We don't give a shit about that. We want to see De Niro shoot an assault rifle at a convoy of black cars in an open-air market in the middle of the day. We want not one but two of the most spectacular car chases ever captured on film. We want a weird, emotionally stunted bromance between Robert De Niro and Jean Reno, and we want them to hate Stellan Skarsgård and Sean Bean more and more as they fall more and more in love with each other. We want a beardy old French guy living with a couple of big dogs in a villa in Provence to paint his little samurai, and we want the improbability of his existence, of his friendship with Jean Reno, of his easy access to surgical equipment, but total lack of surgical knowledge to only enhance the mystery to be its own kind of justification. Yes, we accept that there is also a sniper in the rafters of the Ice Dancing Gala. Yes, we accept that a bad guy would murder a child in a playground to demonstrate his badness. If it will get us to the first car chase scene, or the self-surgery scene, or the second car chase scene, we will pretty much accept whatever Frankenheimer has to do to get us there. Whenever there is any doubt, there is no doubt. That's the first thing they teach you. Today on Friendly Fire, Ronin. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast with the hosts who definitely know what color the boathouse is at Hereford. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. 
and I'm John Roderick. Guys, uh, before we get to today's delightful bonus episode, we received some mail. It, I, I think we got this kind of a long time ago, but I uh, haven't found an opportunity to introduce it to the show. And then I moved and it was in a box for a long time. So... This is a segment that John has popularized on his many other shows, the uh, the mail call segment. If you've shelled out your hard-earned cash for this, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Mail call. This comes uh, this comes to us via our, our safe drop, right? You found a, a, a chalk X on a mailbox. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then went went out to a park bench in, in uh, Bethesda. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. I had a Samsonite briefcase and uh the other person also had a samsonite briefcase and uh mm-hmm. somehow i went home with a different briefcase than i mm. arrived with well um, tell us what's the mail so this is uh this actually came from seattle ironically um <laughs> and it's a it looks like kind of a homemade envelope it's it's colored with crayons or colored pencils or something and then all taped up with red duct tape um, okay. And there's no name on 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 the package. It doesn't say who uh, it's from. I don't like that. <laughs> I'm glad you're opening it. Yeah, I'm in a uh, hermetically sealed office, so the anthrax can't get everywhere. Okay, we've got a letter. Goes like this. Hello, boys. RoboCop will never be the same after watching the recommended YouTube video from your podcast. I found the enclosed comic and I thought of you. Hope you like it and the paper airplanes. Thanks for the insights and the last Don. I think Don is referring to the uh, the amazing uh, <laughs> RoboCop video where RoboCop shoots a guy in the dick and then shoots like 50 other guys in the dick also. Mm-hmm. The best video on the Internet. Um, a, a video that really, once we sat John down and had him watch it, like didn't really affect him either way. Yeah, it's like you've seen videos like that many times before. Yeah, sure. The old shooting the dick videos; those date back to the eighties. <laughs> wow, Don has sent us uh, an official adaptation in comic book form of the hit film RoboCop Two. Wow, and Whoa. it's uh, it's it's bagged and boarded, but I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna commit a comic book atrocity and open it up oh man this is very it's like uh it's black and white very old school like indie comics art style this is really neat i don't remember this brain in a tank character from robocop 2 but i don't really remember robocop 2 i uh i've seen two i've seen three i've seen the rest i don't remember brain tank either yeah. Well, I can't wait to uh, get off the phone with you, Bozo, so I can read this comic. Uh, Don has also sent some. These kind of look like um, like paper airplanes that Leonardo da Vinci would would fold. They're, it's it's paper that's printed with with the fold lines, but it's a it's like it's like weatherized, like an ancient da Vinci drawing. Sounds like what Don did was just send you a bunch of presents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a shame you guys aren't here with me to enjoy all this wonderful stuff. Oh, but uh, thank you, Don. That, that was super nice of you to send. And sorry Thanks, it took Don. us so long to get to. But back to Ronin. I, uh, I actually found a goof after writing my little intro that related to my intro. And uh, I thought I might share that with you guys to, to get us started. What do you say? 
Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> Sam, the Robert De Niro character, mispronounces Hereford, the location of the SAS's uh, headquarters, as Hereford. Hereford. The correct British way is Hereford. However, there are there are many Herefords in the U.S., Texas, Arizona, California, and a few in New England. And many of them are pronounced in Sam's way. That's what made his question impossible to answer. Oh, yeah. Which 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 one are you talking about? If, if Sean yeah, which Bean one do you were mean? worth his salt, that's what he would have asked. He would have answered the question with another question. Yeah. Trick question, mate. Instead, he, he just had coffee spilled all over him and... Almost took a tumble off of a balcony. I happened to do my SAS training in Arizona. <laughs> I can't believe Sean Bean is in this film, but like through not even half of it, it's a half Bean movie. It's a half Bean. I really like how Sean Bean is in this movie. Like, I, I don't feel like I detect anything in the script as saying that his character would be a little like drugged out or like greasy the way Sean Bean is like I I kind of feel like Sean Bean made like really strong choices about this guy and that little sore on his lower lip I feel like is such a specific thing about him there's always the big talker in any heist movie the guy the guy who's way overconfident about shit and that's Sean Bean in this movie but he definitely puts a different spin on whatever that guy is yeah that he's like desperate in some way that is a little hard to put your finger on. I don't like your attitude. The color of the boat hat. Well, fuck off! I don't know how you get typecast like Sean Bean. You see this in Hollywood a lot where there's a guy who just ends up being in every movie as kind of the like, like sidekick of the protagonist that's actually... Uh, a, a betrayer like what is it in somebody's face that makes you go oh this is the actor that's going to play untrustworthy people yeah weak of will <laughs> yeah Sean Bean has really nailed that that like he's a warrior and yet he's also got weak character he's a guy with weak character right he, he plays that in the Lord of the Rings yeah. he plays it in Ronan like Patriot Games, he's a, a a version of somebody. He's got he's got too much character in Patriot Games. <laughs> um, he's in Game of Thrones in a way that's not inconsistent with it. It's so much so that when you see him in a movie, you're like, "Oh boy, What's this I can't." <laughs> yeah, I can't trust this guy. And 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 why is that? How did he? How did he corner that role? I don't know. But it's a great portrayal uh, of that character. There's so much about him that is like is so specific, like the fact that he's already at the warehouse after the like when they meet up in the in the little cafe, he's not there. But then he's like waiting for them at the warehouse. So like like seems like maybe more in with the Irish uh, people that are hiring them than everyone else. Maybe not. Right. And then like when he like barfs after their confrontation with the arms dealers, 
he's like so fucking gacked out on the adrenaline <laughs> of getting in a gunfight that he like crashes super hard like a kid who's had too much Halloween candy. <laughs> you can use him though in a way that this film does, which is by dismissing him the way and when they dismiss Sean Bean's character. I was kind of waiting for him to reappear to fuck things up. Yeah. This screenplay is so full of cliches, but there are there are moments like this where it, avoids that it defies one. it. Right. And and you could have a Sean Bean character stay in the movie and be constantly fucking things up and constantly, you know, and be the be the one that's um be Chekhov's Bean. <laughs> yeah, or, or uh, but uh, but also be the uh, be the character that we think is going to be the betrayer, and then it turns out to be someone right. else, right? And instead, he's just there to be the first one to die, and but in a way that's like really, really super pathetic. We've all seen the movie where the bad guy's body falls out of frame and reveals the guy who's there to save the day. And this film makes John Renault that guy, but a lesser film makes it Sean Bean. Right. Surprise Sean Bean to save the day. I've probably watched this movie a hundred times in my life, and I probably missed the fact that Sam was still in the CIA the first 50 of those times. Like it was just a good car chase movie to me. And I like I like that that line happened so quickly in that scramble at the end that I just it just like didn't register. And I was like, oh, like, I guess like it all worked out somehow. Great. Cool. But like thinking back on his suspicions surrounding the Sean Bean character and his lack of suspicion surrounding the uh, Stellan Skarsgård character mm-hmm. is so interesting, given like the secret that he has at the beginning of the film. Right. And presuming that Skarsgård as a KGB agent would have been someone he was, he was familiar with or had been briefed on. Right. Um, I've seen this movie a lot of times too, and it's the greatest car chase movie uh, ever until that Bourne movie. And the Bourne movie just kind of stole all the bits from this one. (laughs) But um, you're going to race some cars around Paris. Well, we're going to race some cars around Paris, too. <laughs> yeah. How do you like them apples? You, you're going to go against traffic. We're going to go against traffic. <laughs> but uh, I didn't notice until this viewing how many like enormous plot holes there are in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I enjoy it so much as a romp. But this time watching it, I was like, wait a minute. Now, if he was in the CIA the whole time, are they is the CIA really going to authorize him using a like a grenade launcher in the middle of a town. <laughs> I, I don't think his handler would be cool with him. Just like, in, I mean, he initiates the gunfight. There, there are 20 civilian deaths in that scene that you would think that the, uh, that the section chief for France would be like, uh, no, we're not going to do that. Are you talking about the scene where the car crashes into the cafe? And and like the actual heist of the case scene, the the heist of the case where where he has the where uh, Jean Reno has the 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 thing that controls the stoplight and they stop the right, car right. and then he he piles out of a car and just full on shoots a grenade right at the right at the car initiating right the death of twenty right. civilians and and later on when it all plays out and I sat and thought about it I was like if 
all they were trying to do, if the whole thing, if the whole story was just about trying to get Seamus, trying to nail Jonathan Price, yeah, how are you going to go back to CIA headquarters and go, the the 20 collateral damage civilian deaths and the like 10 other dudes that we killed and the car crashes <laughs> and wrecking all the fish markets we wrecked not to even get to Jonathan Price but just to get the case to get to Jonathan Price that's a that's going to be a tough accounting do you think that cuts against the classic like what is known in like film scholarship is like a MacGuffin movie, but what I call just a bag movie. Like, does that cut against the bag moviness of this? Like don't, as the body count rises, do you also need to feel a corresponding like need to know what the value of the item is? I kind of do. Yeah. Because you, because we're working on a premise that these are all X special forces people who all are now mercenaries and doing dark arts work for money. None of them have any ideological investment in, in the IRA. Um, and the money seems like, Oh yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about a hundred grand for this, sure. It seems like a cool mission. I feel like Deirdre believes in the IRA. Deirdre does. Right. She's like the but only one, of, though. <laughs> but she's she's the she's the boss, or she's running the show, and and maybe she kind of only half does. But the problem is, after you've killed your first twenty people, and you don't have the case, and you don't know what's in the case, at a certain point, you're like, I th- I'm out, right? Like I don't any more care about this. Or you're committed utterly, because at that right, point, what's the difference? <laughs> I guess right. <laughs> I mean, he plays his cover really well because like like he's always demanding like that they increase how much they're going to pay him for this. Right. Like initially, it's like you're going to get 40,000 bucks and a and a thank you when this is all over. And and then he's like, nope, like my price just increased. It's one hundred thousand dollars up front. It's one hundred thousand dollars when you get the case. It's one hundred thousand dollars a week going forward. Like like and then. You know, Stellan Skarsgård is is tripling the price of the case and stuff. But, but isn't that magical? The way that, like, in a in an Agatha Christie construction, De Niro would be more suspicious for his actions there. But all they all that happens in this movie is that he becomes more and more credibly the smartest guy in the room. I did not suspect him as being CIA until the moment he confronts Deirdre, the way that it should be. Well, let me put this to you because. I think I think this this was a problem for me many many viewings ago which is just the like actuarial problem. What we have here is a is a a case basically it's a case that's got the same stuff in it that was the MacGuffin in in pulp fiction. Can't sleep. Right? We never open the case so we never see the gold glow. So what it is basically and and, th- and because it shares a universe with with uh, Pulp Fiction, what we know now is that it's a magic gold pair of glowing ice skates that powers <laughs> both films. Mm-hmm. So here we have a thing that the only people that seem to want it are the Russians and the IRA. But the Russians can outbid the IRA. All right. We know that. Because if the IRA could buy it with money, they would have just outbid the Russians. 
But the IRA has enough money to pay five dudes a hundred grand each plus another hundred grand or whatever, whatever math you just did, Ben, plus <laughs> buy a brand new Audi with a customized uh, set of of jets, right? Like a, like a custom Audi R9 or whatever the fuck that was. It was an A9. What was it, Adam? It was an S8. It's an S8 and an A8. That was uh, that was actually something that uh, was also in the IMDb goof section is that during that car chase, that car changes model back and forth a bunch of times. <laughs> but if you start to do the math, the IRA has already invested, what, half a million dollars uh, into the the acquisition of this thing? I, and a, a long shot acquisition of the thing, right? Like right. They, can't, they can't count on definitely getting it if they're doing it this way. And however much the Russians are prepared to pay for it, when, when Skarsgård triples his price, the tripled price amount still fits inside a normal briefcase. <laughs> so exactly what are the economics of this? Like, is it is this box a $3 million box and the IRA only has $1 million? It can't be more than a $5 million box. You wouldn't be able to fit the cash in the briefcase. It's like there's an equation where, where either the box contains a greater value than what you're being paid to get to get it. But if you don't know what the value is of the box, then you don't know if any of your protagonists could then flip it themselves. Right. You're really kind of dragged along into the motivations of a guy like Gregor. I'm hit! Take the case! Because the implication is, it's kind of that the box is some kind of nuke code or something that the IRA is going to use for something bad. But the thing is, if the if if the if the guy with the fur coat is really KGB, well, the Russians already have all the nukes they could possibly want. They're not buying nuke stuff on the black market from from some weirdo French dudes in a castle. Who were those dudes in the first place? Who were the dudes that had the bucket to sell in the first place? <laughs> That's completely left. It's just like some dudes in sunglasses have a bucket to sell, and they're good. They don't yeah, panic really, when the signs fall down around them. That's right. One of them that's goes right. for the case. One of them goes for the asset. But they drive Citroens. Yeah. So how good can they be? <laughs> right? <laughs> like they're they're French dudes. There's no way a Citroen pulls away from an Audi S8 with a dual nitrous system in it. <laughs> yeah. Adam, I had a car guy question about this movie because there's a, a line when when he's giving his order for what car he wants that has always stuck in my head. He says something that can really shovel. Is uh, that, that's fun. Is that a term that you hear thrown around in car guy circles? What he's talking about is a car that could take and distribute damage to other cars. Wow. That's, that's how I interpreted that. Like an S8 is a big sedan. And it's something that's going to be able to move other cars around the street were it to rub some metal. So that's what I thought he was getting at there. Yeah, because he's he's placing that order in a in a context where they don't even know like where the job is going down, right? That order is insane. <laughs> it's a great order. I took I took that as a reference to shovel all the coal in, gotta keep it rolling. Uh, right. Chattanooga, there you are, right? You're that, uh, that's like a that's an old like you know uh, 
uh, locomotive reference. I feel like Larry in that scene is doing a thing that wouldn't become popular until the Fast and the Furious films, which is being very specific about a car and how it's kitted out in a way that flies over most people's heads in 1998. Uh Like he's Uh actually talking about on camera in dialogue you can hear about the need for bigger injectors to accommodate the nitrous system in a way that you just don't hear in the late 90s. It's pretty hot stuff. And I know as someone who yeah. liked to demon chip his his uh, Beamer, that that perked your ears right up. It's fucked up, though. Like, <laughs> in the same way that you never see inside the skateboard box, like, you never see the NOS get used. Yeah. He didn't even have the, like, weird button on, like, like yeah. grafted onto the dash. Yeah. <laughs> you do see it shoveling down a forest road, though, in a mountain. That's yeah. fun. This is the rare movie where you get to see a 6.9 Mercedes used as a hot rod because that, you know, that Merc gets used a lot as a staff car and an Idi Amin car. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you can can see just a guy with jodhpurs getting out of the back of that. That was the hot rod, hot rod sedan of its time. And they just they they fling it around in this movie. This is turned it's into such a code, car right? talk, but <laughs> to have that car in this movie is is telling a certain type of viewer, we we know you, we like you. Yeah, that's right. This is who this movie's for. <laughs> this is for you. Yeah. This is for you. You know this uh you know this exhaust note. Wop, yeah. wop, wop. <laughs> yeah. There's so many exhaust notes flown into this movie. Every single car has got has got some rattling glass pack. Just bop wop. They needed a luxury sedan for that part because uh, De Niro had to come up through the moonroof with the bazooka, <laughs> <laughs> shoot one of the uh, one of the chase cars. He asked Frankenheimer what kind of expression he should use for shooting the bazooka, and Frankenheimer's like, "How about the same one you've used for the entire film?" <laughs> it's so that funny squinty because squinty De Niro driving face is one of my favorite faces. We started off talking about the plot and then it didn't take us but a minute to start talking about the cars. And really, that's what this movie is about because it's got some of the greatest car chase, car stunt shit of of any movie anywhere. It's such a gripping car chase movie. And how many times have we seen it? Collectively, we've seen it 80 times, but I still was just gripping the table. Did you guys read they use right-hand drive cars so that they could plausibly show uh, our actors drive them from the left-hand seated position? Oh, no way. There was an actual driver in the right-hand seat doing yeah. all this. Oh, cool. Isn't that fun? <laughs> That's cool. That never occurred to me. Why, why don't they do that in every movie? I know. Yeah, That's they should so just smart. driver's ed all of the... Uh, all the movie vehicles. Wait, I don't. I, I feel like I don't understand what you're saying. So they put like they, a fake they're, steering wheel. Yeah, they're yeah. British cars, but they put a fake steering wheel in the glove box. Wow, isn't that funny? That's wild. <laughs> I love. Well, that. what they do a lot of the time in the in with with those with picture cars is they they're bracketed onto the back of something else that and they're not mm-hmm. even driving. You know, they're just being dragged. But they couldn't. They couldn't do these stunts with that because these cars are just being flung around. Yeah. There's there's no way they could have been on the back of a flatbed. 
I, I have always heard that like the car chase in Ronin is considered one of the great car chases. And I always wonder which one, because to me, right. the South mm-hmm. of France car chase is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah. But the I, one through Nice. Yeah, there's kind mm-hmm. of three distinct car chases. Yeah, there's the one and then there's the one in the South where they're where Skarsgård is like, go up and you, you're, you're about to catch them, you know, like turn right. Yeah, right. Uh, he's guiding them with his satellite, and I mean that's the one that like feels... he had he had Google Maps like fifteen years before everyone else. Yeah, oh, that would have been map. What was it? Map Quest. <laughs> yeah, so. totally. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great if he had a bunch of like crumpled up printouts of <laughs> map of the area. Uh, there's so many elements to it, right? Like the thumper and the and the bazooka and the simulator and the traffic light automatic switch like there's it's there's a lot going on in that oh right the firecrackers in the bush yeah Mm -hmm. running off the road with the with the other cars a bunch of times this is a pork chop movie but it kind of defies even our pork chop rules because there's just no there's no even plausible connection to war. What are you talking this? about, John? The BBC World Service announces the end of the of the troubles at the end of this movie. They solved the troubles. They solved the <laughs> troubles. You're right. You're right. Good. Okay, good. But there's a lot of cool spy craft in it. And I always feel like when you introduce Michael Lonsdale into a movie in any capacity, but particularly one where he is like a bearded bear who's in a in a house in the south of France and he's just kind of speaking quietly but you know that his fingers reach to all to every corner of the globe right like he could he could place a phone call and have an aircraft carrier retask you're into some tradecraft movie stuff that i just love and there's there's cool tradecraft in this although maybe not quite enough i i feel like that's one place where the script you know, we we as as Adam pointed out, we spend we sp- spend a little bit of time talking about the injectors of an Audi, but not <laughs> quite enough time talking about the spy stuff. There's some moments where like it could have used a little bit more cool spy stuff, like the fact that they're like sitting around in in a cafe in Paris, going like, "Well, we lost uh, we lost Gregor, we lost the case, we pretty much screwed unless we can figure out." where that case came from and they happen to just be right down the street from the skating rink where all of the little girls are walking around with their identical skating <laughs> cases and uh, and they're like oh he made the case <laughs> one thing i never noticed about that moment though is like like at some point they mentioned like he he didn't have time to have it made so he must have made it himself and they're like well that like that's absurd where would he even get paint but then I remembered that scene when they're going down the steps in in uh, in their apartment in Nice, uh, Deirdre and Sam to go to go case the villa. Somebody's sp- painting the windows. Yeah, the window gets spray painted silver spray paint. So he made the case right there under their fucking noses. Yeah, yeah. and it's also the room where Gregor got his beat down. Yeah, that's uh, I love that. Stellan Skarsgård, whenever he shows up in a film, always suspicious, always great. He does nothing and he really steals this film in a, in a very Stellan Skarsgårdian kind of way, the way he always does. 
Yeah. I really like him. He's exactly what that part needed, right? Yeah, yeah. I met him once. What? Oh, really? Uh, kind of right around when we were starting The Greatest Generation, had this job in um, at a media company, and, and one of the brands that I w- was doing the video for was like a men's lifestyle magazine on the internet kind of thing. And one of the reporters was starting this series of kind of like interviews with celebrities that were, you know, like if, if, if something got offered to like, oh, you can like meet Luis Guzman and ask him some questions because of this event that he is going to be doing, like we would go and, you know, so like we did one with some baseball players and one, a couple with some, some other famous people, but they were all kind of like comedic interviews. And we went to like, I think it was like Bleecker Street Films offices or something because Stellan Skarsgård was there promoting some new movie. And (laughs) this reporter like launched into his comedy interview of Stellan Skarsgård and Stellan Skarsgård was not interested in doing bits at all. (laughs) We kind of got- I believe it. We kind of got browbeat out of the room. It was like, (laughs) Well, no, Stellan Skarsgård (laughs) hates us, like one of the scariest (laughs) characters in film. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man, I, I'd be careful around him. Right? Did you just did he monosyllable you, or how did he let you know that it was not what he was into? He actually shot a gun at the reporter, and he said, "I almost just shot his head off, and I don't even know him." And then he turned to me and he says, "I don't even particularly like you." <laughs> you know what that's a that's a great reference ben because i thought after that scene the thing in the case was that weird looking gun with the futuristic <laughs> looking scope i thought it was weapons technology that that gregor was then using oh he like he'd like pulled that gun out of the case yeah i mean the, one of the first times i saw the film that's what i thought and, yeah and it definitely came back to me when i watched it this time around that's an amazing scene like the the like object lesson and how depraved he is is mm-hmm. such an interesting thing for a villain to do. Yeah, but and that's that's one of those where the first time you watch the movie, you're like, oh my god, and then the subsequent watches, you're like, this is a busy street, a park next to some playground equipment in a tight little French uh, like uh, mountain town, and he just shot a dude splattering his brains on the car window and nobody <laughs> picked up on it. Yeah. Like there, there are quite a few things that happen in the second half of this movie where you're like, now wait a minute. Uh, that would have, <laughs> that would have been a pretty conspicuous move. Like, did he then just put the car in reverse and back out of his parking spot and drive somewhere else? What caliber of weapon shoots through the front of someone's head, but does not exit wound out the back with enough energy to break the window behind them. I'm sure there's a firearms pedant out there who will tell us. <laughs> but also paint the window with the dude's brains and yet yeah. not penetrate the window. Pretty amazing technology. The the Quentino film would have cut back to the interior of the car and we would have seen <laughs> Stellan Skarsgård totally messed up by that. <laughs> not even a costume change for him. Later when he is when he's on the lamb and he's trying to make a connection with, he's trying to sell it to the Russians, but he doesn't want them to find him in advance. And he definitely doesn't want his former teammates to find him. 
he does that uh, thing that everyone that's kind of hiding tries to do, which is walks to the very edge of a floor to ceiling window that's open on the corner of the main square of the town and stands there sort of silhouetted talking on a satellite phone. It was, <laughs> it was very definitely like what you would do if you were trying to be inconspicuous. <laughs> yeah. That's like one of the things that I feel like all of these spy movies kind of flirt with though is like, these are like the least inconspicuous, inconspicuous people of all time. Like that's definitely like, like bond DNA in that moment and born DNA. Like Mm -hmm. this movie definitely feels like the, the like antecedent to the born identity films in a lot of ways, but that, that in particular, like that, flashy f- flashy spy shit the the sort of film that plays like action movie parkour with their beautiful foreign country you know right like, it's not really relevant to anything that they're doing this in the countries that they're in it's just like what looks neat as the backdrop for a car chase yeah i liked thinking about the fact that they start in paris go down to south of france and then go back to paris like what they what they cut out of the film is the like six and a half hour road trip that they had to go on. <laughs> and like, what do you think those guys talked about? Like, where did they pull over and eat halfway down to Nice? Like, <laughs> yeah, just talking about their their high school friends and their first love. What kind of smokes are those? I've never seen yellow cigarettes. <laughs> oh, those Galois, they appear over and over in this movie and. I was I was saying to you guys the other day, having watched this movie so many times, I never noticed the yellowness of them as as much as I noticed it this time around. It it feel it feels almost like a Berenstain Bears situation where it's like, were those always yellow? I don't remember them always being yellow. I don't know if I ever would have noticed if it wasn't such a big part of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The the yellow cigarette is is a moment in the film. And when I saw everyone smoking yellow cigarettes in this, I was like, is everyone super fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> What's the yellow cigarette in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's an LSD dipped cigarette Whoa. that uh, Brad Pitt's right. character's given. Does LSD work if you ignite it on fire? You wouldn't ask me. Oh, wait, but they weren't Galois, they were Jetans. You see the Galois logo a bunch because I think there's a Galois ashtray in the in the warehouse. Like there's Galois product placement, I feel like in this movie, but that's not those aren't Galois cigarettes as far as I could tell. But what's weird is that like Jetans and Galois, they're not all yellow. Most of them are not yellow. Most of them are regular. Yeah. So I don't remember I feel like the first time I saw this movie if the yellowness of those smokes had been so so front and center, you know, like I smoked cigarettes for many years. I'm really surprised that I didn't do the thing where you run out, or the thing I definitely would have done, which is go find those and smoke them. I never knew anyone that smoked. There, there were like three kinds of cigarettes that anyone I ever knew smoked. It was Camelites, Parliaments, or, or American Spirits. In the yellow box. Like that was the only cigarettes I ever saw anyone actually buy. And as a non-smoker, that always baffled me. I'd be like, like part of the coolness of smoking has got to be picking a weird brand. And like 
Oh yeah. Oh, you don't you don't know these? Yeah. Well, I get them at a, a place in the West Village that imports them from Turkey or whatever. You know. I worked at a time uh, at the at a at a counter in a grocery store where you bought your cigarettes if you went to the grocery store, and eighty percent of the cigarette purchases in that grocery store were Marlboro Red Hard Pack. Whoa! Shit. Yeah, it surprised me too. You worked at a we- rugged grocery store, man. <laughs> I didn't is the thing. I worked in a suburban Safeway store that, that, yeah, I was very surprised by this myself. We had all the kinds too. Uh, apparently, jetons may are jetons rolled with corn paper. Oh. So they're, they're named after maize. Uh, and it's actually like paper made out of corn. Wow. So it's healthy. How did I never smoke these? So I, I smoked a lot of different kinds of cigarettes. I never smoked Marlboro Reds because I just I just associated them with other people, right? I never I never would have skied with Tyrolia bindings, and I never would have smoked Marlboro Lights. <laughs> it was just like, sorry, that's the other side of the team. I did smoke a lot of different kinds of cigarettes, and Export A's ended up being my my uh, favorite brand in the in the second half of my smoking career, but European cigarettes, Jeton and Galois. They give you that throat burn, huh? Yeah. They taste like cat piss kind of. I mean, the worst cigarettes in the world are Ducados from Spain, which are like, if you took pipe, if you took cigars and you ground them up and pissed (laughs) on them and then let them, let them bake in the sun for a year and then pissed on them again and let them bake in the sun for another year and then rolled them into cigarettes. That would That's be Ducatos. That's that famous Ducato flavor. Keeps you coming back for <laughs> Ducatos more. Ducatos are one of those cigarettes where you smoke one unfiltered Ducatos and you're sick for, sick for 10 days. <laughs> you can light either end and get satisfying flavor so friendly to your taste. The cigarettes really felt like a character in the movie this time. And I don't know why it is that 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 escaped my attention before and De Niro sometimes will take a cigarette and sometimes won't yeah sometimes it's like don't smoke right now because because uh, of the night vision like I, I did a I did an episode of of uh, my podcast Roderick on the line the other day where we talked about finding porn in the woods <laughs> and and one of our fans commented that because they were like a young millennial they had never seen porn on paper They'd never seen the woods either. Yeah, the, but the whole concept of like finding a garbage bag full of porn in the woods was like a completely new idea to them. Uh, and this movie, like smoking, is such a huge part of the film. And you can, it's still in a time in Europe when you could smoke everywhere. Does De Niro ever actually smoke one or does he just accept one and stick it behind his ear? Because I feel like this was also a time where, like, it was starting to be a bit, uh, a bit, like, impossible to depict the hero of a movie consuming a cigarette. He does tuck one behind his ear, doesn't he? I don't. I don't. I'm not sure we ever see him smoking. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe that's another level of Ronin that we haven't unlocked. <laughs> the forty eighth. Yeah, that's right. I feel like that's the thing that sells this movie that title and kind of the specious connection of it to anything in this film. 
Because the like, twist is that is that he's not a Ronin, right? He is still yeah. a samurai. Right, but it's uh, it's such a loose connection to it. Like it's it's very catchy. Like the one word title is catchy. The idea of like ancient samurai lore as a thing you can describe in two sentences by a by a model making bear in a basement. Like <laughs> cool. It's it seems more catchy than than applicable. And it feels like a a choice in marketing more than a choice that makes any sense in the context of the film itself. Well, it's interesting. The the screenplay there's a there's a lot of like uh there's a lot of static around it because David Mamet came in halfway through and by some accounts completely rewrote the screenplay. Like Frankenheimer at one point is quoted as saying Mamet, you know, completely rewrote it and the credited screenwriter uh John Zeke, uh there wasn't a word of his his script left in it. And then later on, Frankenheimer totally walks that back and is like, no, no, no. Zeke is, you know, that was his, his script entirely. Like he's owed everything. And Mamet actually took his name off the script. Uh, and, and it, and it came out as a, a under a pseudonym, but it's like the Mammotness of the script is pretty yeah. clear. It's what, I mean, it's a smarter, script than a lot of scripts in movies like this like why does this movie captivate us when so many other heist films and spy movies just feel like they're they're just going through the the motions well i feel like that the ronin connection which is so tenuous at at first but like gets made when when we when we have the scene of them getting a load of the model, it elevates it to this kind of like mythic level where the bear is talking to De Niro's character about like the kind of honor that was practiced by feudal warriors and 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 they're having like a kind of professional tire kicking moment with each other about like, yeah, but like we, like you and I, we, uh, we underdig what those guys we're all about right like we like seppuku is not necessarily where we would go with it but but like game recognized game those dudes lived by the kind of warrior code that we live by yeah but de niro never breaks character there he he continues with this whole like i'm just a plumber i don't know (laughs) you know that's not what i would have done and lonsdale is really probing him like this is what we, this is our thing, yeah? Am I right? You, you are the guy who does the special, you are the, the samurai, am I, am I Well, and crucially at that point, like, as far as Jean Renault and uh, Michael Lonsdale can tell, Sam got fucked over by Deirdre and is out of the $40,000 that he claims to really need. So why does he care at this point? And it is a matter of honor from their perspective. But what we find out later is that it was, it was always his job. Like it wasn't a matter of honor for him. Right. Oh, interesting. So they're, yeah, they're trying to figure out you've just been, you've just been shot in the abdomen. Yeah. You had to do a, a, a a surgery scene with no uh, (laughs) anesthetics, but he's not passionate about it. 
so why why is he pursuing her? That's that, that's interesting. Interesting take. Sure. And they're assuming it's a warrior code thing. At some point, I'm going to have like a little model of like the Cafe Montmartre in my basement with little miniature Jean Renault and little miniature Michael Lonsdale <laughs> all, all arrayed. Ben, I didn't realize until this scene, until you brought it up, that at this moment in the film and the story, Sean Bean's the only one that's been paid. He's ahead on the entire mission. <laughs> You're He's right. ahead of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He got in and got out while the getting was good. Yeah. And he only barfed up a mouthful of Campbell's soup. Yeah, that wasn't too bad. I do feel like he he got the uh he got the the good end of the deal because anybody in the film that remembers him enough to keep tabs on him or be mad at him, um, the only one that would even care is Deirdre, and she clearly got out of the game. So he got he's scot freed it right stack of cash yeah. I mean yeah. wounded pride he's never gonna see these guys again he, no pride doesn't apply if you're never confronted with the people who know about it he's gonna fucking learn the color of the boathouse at Hereford though <laughs> <laughs> yeah one ticket to Hereford please maybe think twice before uh, giving his professional references to wheelchair jobs placement experts. Yeah, he's the classic Charlie's Angels, isn't he? Like the um, main character that never appears in the film. The man <laughs> in the wheelchair that put this whole thing together. I love the scene where Seamus is like flipping her tons of shit for failing to secure the case and saying that she hired a bunch of lambs and she turns it right around on him. And that was your fucking contact. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite lines in that movie i love deirdre she's such a fucking great character she's like you know she gets maybe like an eighth of this movie but just kicks all kinds of ass with every instant she has she does conversational aikido like in a off in a film like that's about a heist you often get like all of the heist members attacking each other with dialogue but she seems to like absorb people's aggressive dialogue and redirect it in a way that is uh, unique. Sam asks her what's in the case like 10 times and like starts to pepper the question in when she's not expecting it to see if she'll like slip up and just say it. And she is she is impenetrable, like she cannot be tricked. Well, she's she's she does that amazing thing, which is she's clearly not the mastermind. She has to check in with her boss but she's also really running the show so she's not just a functionary she's not somebody and it's not revealed later that she's being puppet mastered like we know it from the very beginning so she's got this intermediary authority where she's making the calls yeah but but not the big calls but you always feel like she's the one you're gonna end up relying on it's an unusual role yeah, especially an unusual role for a woman in a movie like this of this time. I think that brings up the most glaring uh, element to the film, which is that we are meant to accept that De Niro falls in love with her and that in the second half of the movie is motivated by his 
emotional feelings for Deirdre in such a way that he doesn't shoot her or incapacitate her outside of the post office, lets them get away with the case and crucially Seamus, the the person we learn later, De Niro is there to neutralize. It's the first time he's ever seen Seamus in the movie, but instead of just like shoot Deirdre, walk across the street, shoot Seamus, movie over, mission accomplished. <laughs> he lets her get away and lets them get away because he loves her. And then at the end of the movie, he loves her so much that he, that he screws around in the parking lot, uh, trying to help her escape and ends up, you know, shot by Seamus. And then at the very end of the movie, we're left with him all like lonely heart in the cafe, apparently waiting for her to come in. Like how long has he been sitting at the cafe with, with the, with Jean Reno? Like a day, an hour, a month. Jean Reno is so so French in that moment. Like <laughs> she's never coming back here, man. She is not coming back, my friend. And then he gets the the voiceover to close the film. Maybe that is the third lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but like, why, Adam? Do you have any insight into this? Why is this love story? Why? Why would? Why would De Niro? fall in love with her i mean she's very captivating but why in the script is the love story necessary i mean it feels like the thing that's bolted on to the pre-existing story structure as a way to i don't know make it make the film more entertaining to a lady i don't know (laughs) i mean it's certainly it's certainly a, a moment unsupported by anything else in the film and and honestly, like if you're going to end the film on a note, on an emotional note of some kind, why couldn't you just have Jean Renault and De Niro kind of in a weird heat kind of way, you know, like, like in a Pacino De Niro eating in a diner situation, like the two coolest cats in the film should have a celebratory coffee and then go their separate ways. That could be a more contemporary way to do it than what we get here, which is like more wistful and I I would argue unconvincing. I think we needed more scenes in the middle of the film to, to confirm what we're getting at the end. It just doesn't add up plausibly. I spent some time in interrogation once. This film teaches you about a large crowd psychology many times, like the panic that large crowds, uh, go through during something that looks like a terrorist attack or a car chase or whatever. Why does no one panic when an ice skater is murdered at center ice in full view of everyone? It's it's such an orderly walk to the exits in that scene. Tonally, that was the that was the moment that clanged for me. Are you kidding? They like knocking over the police barricades and stuff. It was totally a panic. You just really because the they start the camera is focused on the on the on the Russian gangsters who are walking out calmly and then have to wait for the panicked crowd to like envelop them before they can use it as cover. It's a it's a spreading panic though, I, and I think at first it's not clear that she was shot. She's just an ice skater that fell down. It's the delay, like yeah, like that's where I was at. Like like it should be she should be in a pool. 
and it should and the and the panic should be immediate it was the slow roll of the of what was less than bedlam to me the other day i watched an online video of somebody throwing a fire like a pretty big firework in a in a protest in dc and like the people that are around where the firework goes off just like stand up and walk away from it and i was like i can't believe a fucking explosion went off in a huge crowd of people on the streets of dc and like the reaction wasn't instant panic by everyone like like the cops don't pull out their guns like nobody seems to react in a sudden way and i i I mean i wonder if like they did research on that on like how how that might go down in that scene yeah i wonder it it feels like maybe a thing where if the closer you are to the to the like panic spreads in ripples out and it's actually people that are further away where the panic starts to take over because they don't know what it is. Right. They have no information. Yeah. If a firecracker goes off right next to you, you're like, well, that wasn't a gun and (laughs) there weren't two of them. So it was too sparkly to be a gun. Yeah. I guess I got to get out of here. But if you're kind of far away and you hear a bang and then you hear people scream, you're like, shit. Right. But that whole, I mean, that whole ending in the ice skating rink, it's a version of the, it's a version of an ending that we see in other movies, right? It's basically the ending of Godfather 3. Um, there's a, that movie with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn ends with a, with the assassination in the production of the Mikado, I think, um, the whole like end a movie with a long sequence where there's someone in a theater with a rifle who's going to shoot the lead actor. It's a, it's a trope and it's a, and it's a trope I hate. Like don't end a movie in a theater. We're already (laughs) in a theater watching the movie End a movie with a car crash for Christ's sake. What about, yeah, when it's like in the middle of a movie. Like, I feel like the, one of the recent uh, James Bond films has a big opera set piece. Actually, one of the recent uh, Mission Impossible films has a big opera set piece in the middle, too. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Right? It's a real thing. And it's like, man, like, I wonder if this opera is a metaphor for what's going on on screen, but I don't speak Italian, so I'll never know. (laughs) You're right. Like, the more I think about it, like, the end of the Naked Gun has it. Like, like the big event, the big public event, the big public danger (laughs) happens more often than not. Yeah. I mean, this movie starts in a big empty warehouse, so they couldn't have, like, the final standoff also be in a warehouse. Right. So they had to go big public event. I want one of these movies where where instead of listening to the guy talk about how he wants his car hot rodded, that when De Niro says, I need some new clothes, he and uh, Jean Renault have like a 10 minute conversation about the cut of their <laughs> of the jacket. Like, oh, do you want to something double breasted? No. Oh. oh, man, that that is made for you. <laughs> Three roll two. That is just said, and then like we get to see over the course of the next couple of scenes what the result of that was. And in Paris, it is turtleneck with a black blazer. And then in the south of France, it's 
it's like light gray turtleneck with a suede blazer. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Jean Renault made extremely French choices with that yeah. open brief on what, what to go get clothes wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the brown suede blazer really plays a uh, plays an outsized role in in the, the middle of the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bold choice. It might have been ultra suede, in fact. I'm looking at a close up of it now. It's a uh, it's a very regular pattern. I don't like it. Okay. Wow. Well, even the pork chop feed gets its own custom rating system, and. Uh, I mean, for Ronan, so many possibilities. I think like Tom Silva says in the beginning of this old house, <laughs> the money is in the details. Hmm. And it's very difficult for me to turn off my higher filmmaking brain when I watch a film like this because I can't get out of the technical challenge of making car chase scenes like this. I mean... I'm I'm almost envious of the person who could just sit down and watch this film and enjoy it without wondering how, because this looks like a nightmare to me. Like the the getting the clearances for the locations, mapping the chase. Like here's the film paper to make the movie is like organizing a heist. Like there's so much planning and gathering and coordinating and all of this stuff to make it feel real and good that. I mean, I think you see these details everywhere. And my favorite parts of the sequences, though, are so often like the little details. And my favorite little detail in this film happens in that second chase. There's the roundabout scene where there's a car carrier that has to stop short, <laughs> stop short before the intersection. And we're cutting inside and outside of the car chase. We're seeing the drivers. We're, we're cutting to the exterior. We're going back and forth. And we cut to kind of a wider shot where we see this car carrier. And then we cut to a mid where we see it like drive right up to the camera. And then we're back out again where we see the, the frontmost car on the upper level of the car carrier flip over perfectly and land on its roof. <laughs> Every time I watch the movie, I, I find a scene like this where I want to rewatch and rewatch and rewatch just to find out how they did it. And there's so much to love about a scene like this because, you know, from a story making standpoint, you can't just keep cutting into and out of these cars. You need to look at other things. It's the Michael Bay technique of like, we've well, we've got to see the wheelchair basketball uh, team <laughs> using the crosswalk. We've got to <laughs> cut to the guy like moving the plate glass window across the street. Like we need... We need the textures and the colors of a, of a living, breathing city uh, to break up the action. And so when we cut to this transport carrier, it, what's great is that it's, it's also car related. <laughs> so we get this, it's, it's like a, a force multiplier of cars, like this, this carrier. I would believe you if you said the carrier was a production vehicle, bringing more cars to use for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, the transporter stops short. The car on the top frontmost position flips over perfectly and lands on its roof. And I backed it up, played it again, backed it up, played it again. You know what's there. It's that little flipper pipe <laughs> up yeah. on top and you can barely see it. But someone spent all day rigging this thing for a moment that is on screen for four seconds. Like that, that, Cut to, cut back, cut to, flip, 
It's over. That was the guy's entire project. And that is emblematic of so many parts of this film, especially the chases. Like, it's what makes the film so enjoyable for so many people. It's what makes it belong in that pantheon of great car chase movies. So on a scale of one to five cars flipped off of their transport trucks, (laughs) that's a very specific rating system. Let's, let's rate Ronan. I'm glad you picked this movie, Ben. It's, I, I think it's a tough fit into our show, but I'm glad I'm glad you found a way. Well, there was there were two reasons why. One is that it's it's clearly a Irish the Troubles movie that is, just happens to be set outside clearly. of Ireland. But se- secondly, uh, we're uh, releasing this for the holidays, and uh, this is it's a Christmas, <laughs> it's a Christmas movie. movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. What wow. do you want for Christmas? <clears throat> My two front teeth. Uh, well played. So happy. Ben, I think you mentioned you'd seen this movie 50-ish times. I feel like I saw every movie made in 1997 and 98 50 to 100 times. I don't know what it was about those two years, but yeah. the, the, the repeated film consumption especially was at its apex. And this was just one of those films that was always on, always on in the background. And I think that's part of what cuts against it is that it's pretty superficial you don't get a lot of depth in it and that's fine i don't really think that's what this is about this is a bag movie and if bag movie is a genre it's one of the best bag films but as a movie movie i think i think we can agree it's it's really good too so i'm gonna give it four and a half flipped cars i hadn't seen this film in a long time and i was kind of hoping it would live up to my good feelings for it that I had 20-ish years ago watching it, and it held up. I liked it. I liked it, too. Um, I really love getting to do a movie like this for Friendly Fire because, yeah, like those movies that you've seen a zillion times and almost know by heart, kind of you get to kind of rewatch them in a new way for Friendly Fire Mm -hmm. because it's... Uh, you know, you're going to be challenged and, and your opinions will, uh, you know, like if, 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 if you're coming with lame opinions, your, your co-hosts are going to let you know about it. And, uh, and, and John's ruined a lot of movies I used to love. (laughs) It happens. Well, we haven't gotten to his review yet, so it could, Uh it could still happen. But, um, Uh I, uh, I I really liked rewatching this movie with my friendly fire hat on, and I, I I agree that it's like one of those movies where if you take a professional interest in film production, it can be really hard to just like let it happen to you as a film because um, it is like it's a stunning accomplishment, and it's like it's like a pre digital effects stunning accomplishment where so many of the things that happen in this would have would be comps where they shot it mm-hmm. four times with motion control and added like different parts of the car chase to it you know for safety reasons basically <laughs> like it this movie feels dangerous because it looks like they did a bunch of, of extremely dangerous things to make it happen and right. like I, there's one corny special effect in this movie that I can think of. And it's when uh, 
Jean Renault and Robert De Niro get in their brown Mercedes and and peel out to start chasing the bad guys in uh, in their in the south of France. Like the <laughs> they animated in smoke from the tires, <laughs> and it looks like it looks like something out of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like <laughs> the smoke is like extremely corny and bad by contemporary standards, but like that's like really the only thing that bumps me out of this movie in the whole movie. So uh, I will also give it four and a half cars flipped off of the top deck of a car delivery truck. Wow, top scores. Um, yeah the 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 danger in this movie that you just feel naturally. I mean, I read a interview where he said that they intentionally did not speed up the film. They didn't, they didn't shoot at a frame rate that would allow the car chases to be like more energized when, when it was played back slightly faster because they felt like it looked corny. And so all of that, like driving 80 miles an hour through a, through an alley in the old town that all feels real and so sketchy. I mean, even just making a film, even, even if they had cleared the streets and everybody on the street was a stunt person yeah, and all those people like, you know, that are crossing right in front of it or the or right in front of the cars. I mean, it just feels like there's no room for error. If, if, if the car just hit a pebble, <laughs> it would, it could just get flung into, into a, 250 year old stone house like there's there's just no way around the fact that this is nuts nuts there's a stunt right before your either right before or right after uh, your rating system stunt Adam where one of these cars hits a motorcyclist and we're so used to seeing motorcycle crashes as a part of this type of big stunt and it's always the case that the stunt rider lays down his motorcycle Mm -hmm. and it's a controlled lay down. The motorcycle slides under a semi trailer or the motorcyclist, you know, often like flips over the top of a car, hits it in such a way that, that he does a somersault or there are so many motorcycle stunts that we see where, you know, that it's a stunt. And even in an otherwise great chase scene, the motorcycle part of it always feels like controlled because how the hell are you going to have an uncontrolled motorcycle crash? But this movie has one, a car hits a motorcycle and parts fly off (laughs) of the motorcycle. And it's a real, it's a real hit. Some, some stunt coordinator was like, okay, you're riding your motorcycle at speed and you hit him in the back tire at speed. And then I guess you walk away from it. Good luck. (laughs) It's so badass. It's such a great stunt and testament to like whoever that guy on the motorcycle was and whoever his friend that was driving the car, because you know, they had to know each other because that's not a thing. That's not like let somebody else pack your parachute. That's like you look at each other before the stunt. And you're like, you're going to hit me right in the hub of my back wheel, right? It's like, you got it. Don't worry about it with my with my professional rubber bumper or whatever. <laughs> and you're going to fly through the air and you're not going to die. Okay, good. Wait, I'm not going to die. 
Not today, my friend. That shit <laughs> makes this movie like unrivaled. And I'm usually the one that that says the holes in a script are the thing that take me out of the film and what the hell, what what was in the box? What a stupid MacGuffin. Come on. Why the Seamus? Who even cares about sh- really the troubles? This all feels like patched together with band-aids, but no. Somehow I just ride this movie like like I'm like I'm on a dolphin with a saddle. <laughs> Beautiful image. This is this is four and a half uh, cars on the top of car carriers being flipped off with a rod. For me too, it's just like it's Ronan. John, I wonder to what extent a film like this taught the wrong lessons to a bunch of films that followed. Because I agree with every word of what you said, but I also recognize that it shouldn't work. Like I think you, I think you make a film like this knowing its flaws, and you hope that its achievements are are greater than than the flaws that are in it. And I think a lot of films try to walk this tightrope and fail. I think most of them do. And I think it's what makes a film like this even more of a miracle to to rewatch. It it shouldn't be possible to do what they did here. It's funny because the first two Bourne movies, I completely forgive any problems in them and they're and they're rife with problems. But I forgive them. But the third Bourne movie where where uh where Matt Damon comes back is is such a garbage barge and it's the same formula it's this, it's basically ronin but but like amped up and with moby in the background <laughs> but like why is the first born movie so why did it feel so revolutionary i mean why did casino royale work so well but quantum of solace was such a fucking cold dick in porridge ball trauma not enough ball trauma in quantum of solace <laughs> it's ball sorry trauma, man i beat right. you to it <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know i have no idea why i and i don't think it's i don't think i'm sentimental about ronan i don't think I, it's not like i went there on a date i didn't see it in the theater on a date it actually came <laughs> out did you know ronan came out on my 30th birthday wow dirty 30 and I can tell you, I know exactly where I was on my 30th birthday. And the last thing I was doing at that point in my life was going to see Robert De Niro car chase movies. <laughs> you know what I'm disappointed about is that a lot of films of this era of this genre have been getting 4K remasters and like getting the treatment. I was surprised that this film has gotten none of that for as loved as it is. HD is as good as you can do. Huh. Yeah, I wonder why. John, did you have a guy in this movie? Uh, My guy, actually, we never see my guy. Mm. But my guy is uh, the one who, in the panic of the crowd outside of the skate, the skate king, as everyone is running everywhere and... um. Like De Niro has grabbed the case with the skates in it and Seamus is shooting people right and left and Deirdre is peeling out. There's somebody in that crowd who noticed 
that there's a silver briefcase with between three and five million dollars in it that no <laughs> one picked up. And someone picked up that briefcase. Now, whether it was just like just rando Frenchy dude who was like, <laughs> well, there are two dead dudes here, but that briefcase looks unattended. <laughs> or whether it was a cop that came later to investigate the scene or whoever. Like but the I Don like to- Cheadle in Boogie Nights. <laughs> like, what's it, what are you going to do? There's a moment of truth yeah. for that character. I like to think that it's just somebody who was at the skate show and was like, well, I guess this skate show's over. Let's get out of here. But they were kind of, you know, they hung back a little bit because they didn't want to be in the front crush of the crowd. And they come out and there's like, some shooting happening, people running around, there are cops everywhere. And then they just stumble upon two dead bodies and they're like, fuck. And then they see that briefcase and they're like, no country for old men plot device. It's a fucking free briefcase. And it, who knows what's in it? I don't care, but I'm grabbing it. If a simple plan had started at a ice ballet show in Paris. That's right. That would be this movie. That's right. That was it. So that is my, that's my guy. And I, and I feel like that's where this movie, that's where the sequel should have started. Right. <laughs> that's where Ronan Dua begins. Right. Just like Rando finds a briefcase. Um, well, my guy is also somebody we don't actually see in the film. Um, there's a credit in the, in the credits role for Fishmonger. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the credit is Ron Hyatt, and that is a pseudonym used by Ron Jeremy, who apparently apparently there is a deleted scene where Ron Jeremy is doing something at that fish market that they <laughs> ram through in no. the first car chase, and yeah, he's in the he's in the credits in, as a pseudonym, and I've I've like slow mowed through that to see if I can see him. I, I think that it would only be stuntmen and the stuff that you see of of the uh, fish market scene that wound up, wound up in the final cut. But uh, the fact that that happened is like, like I feel like that poses so many more questions about this movie. Like, so it was like Frankenheimer, like friends with Ron Jeremy and threw him a, a cameo or something like what would this movie have been like if 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 you had seen that scene it would be one thing if you were already living in europe but they had to fly ron jeremy out for a scene that they ended up cutting <laughs> yeah and like to what? play a french fishmonger of all things <laughs> so, that's weird as hell that's got to be somebody's inside trip right right it's got to be something something weird that that's the documentary i want to see yeah. I don't want to look for Che Guevara's hands. I want to see <laughs> why is Ron Jeremy and Ronan. It's a question that will baffle scholars for generations. I feel like so. Uh, so the fishmonger is my is my guy. Wow, awesome! Of course, just to be clear, Ron Jeremy not a good guy. IRL, just a a, a weird thing that he is cast in this movie at all. Uh, my guy. You could have guessed. It's obviously Larry, played by Larry. Skip Sadu, the, the only actor in the film who requested and was granted permission to drive his own vehicle in the <laughs> film. That's all him. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I love, there's one scene that makes me laugh and laugh every time is when he's getting the essay into position outside the mountain road or like near the mountain road where all those uh, 
all those Citroens like that convoy of them are going to come by. He was given direction to never hit his brake when he's driving the car. And when he comes and skids around that dirt cul-de-sac or whatever, it is so unnecessarily dangerous the way he drives that, that <laughs> it's just like emblematic of everything else he does uh, as a wheelman. I really love the getaway drivers and heist films. And Larry, like... Even in the safe house, he's like making coffee and cooking for people. He seems like yeah. a really good hang. He's like, he's the guy you need as a part of this crew. Never like in the way, always, always doing it right. And like most wheelmen, uh, always gets killed in movies like these. So Larry, my guy. Lairs. Very specific tastes in fuel injectors. I feel like if we if we had a if we planned a heist, Adam, you would be the you would be the guy that was always making coffee, like making sure everybody was cool, and then never touched your brakes. I tell you <laughs> what, John, I would choose a more reliable car than an Audi. Yeah, that heard that. What sedan would Yikes. you use, Adam? What sedan would you use that that had the muscle that could really shovel? <laughs> <laughs> but also was comfortable and had a had a moonroof that I could shoot a rocket launcher out of. <laughs> I gotta tell you, the the five series BMW that gets plowed around in this film, that was badged M5 but was not, what was clearly a 535i. That thing is bulletproof. That 91 five series BMW is is a pretty great vehicle in a use case like this. And if and that's just something I'm just pulling from the film. Like it's hard to think of a car nowadays that I would trust as much. Wow. Damn. Wow. Uh thanks once again for tuning into the bonus feed of Friendly Fire. Uh we really appreciate your ongoing support of our little podcast. Uh it's uh it feels really great to be able to like spend an hour and a half recording a, an episode that is going to be behind a paywall and know that a lot of people are going to listen to it. So thanks to all of you. And uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. And uh, we'll be back with you next month with another pork chop episode of our show. But we're going to leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Panica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. The Friendly Fire Pork Chop Feed is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. There's plenty of episodes in the Pork Chop feed. Make sure to check them all out. We appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Friendly Fire. I mean, it's better than Bullet. I didn't think Bullet was a good movie. That's a movie. That's a movie bolted to a car chase scene. And and bullet's been remastered. Well, bullet. Give me a break. I mean, if you, I I would watch Steve McQueen eat a hot dog. Oh sure.
That that is actually your sexuality. It is. Steve McQueen eating a hot dog is basically my <laughs> that's that's it in a nutshell. Steve Steve McQueen uh-huh. in the back of a pickup truck at a car race eating a hot dog. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.